0: We are going through a sermon series uh, that's entitled Dare to Dream, taking a look at the story of Joseph, his calling, and what that means uh, for our lives as well. This morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37, and we'll be reading verses 12 through 36. If you want to open up your Bibles so uh, you can follow along with us, uh, let's begin by praying. Father, we are... Uh, we're in desperate need of you. Not just the feeling of your presence, but your actual presence among us. And we, we have that here because of the sacrifice that you made. The salvation that you gave to us through the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And as we study, we pray that you will open up our hearts and our minds that our eyes can be led in your path, and that your spirit will guide us as as we look at your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we talked about Joseph and his calling. God chose the youngest. He was also the most hated of all the brothers. And God showed Joseph his destiny through a dream where his brothers and his parents would eventually bow to him. This caused great conflict in the family, and it sets up today's conversation, actually. We're going to see how this dream, this destiny, this uh, calling that God has given Joseph, how that actually is challenged in this passage. Let's start by reading in verse 12 uh, through 17. Now the brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks Near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, "As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them." Very well, he replied. So he sent. He sent. He said to him, "Go and and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me." And he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. And when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the field, and he asked him, what are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? Well, he said, they moved on from here, and I think I heard him say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them near Dothan. The story here shifts. Sometime in the future, after Joseph had had his dreams, after he had told his brothers about his dreams, after he told his father about his dreams. And all the the brothers, they're tending their father's flock near Shechem. And Jacob is concerned about them. And I don't want you to miss out on this part of the passage. Because in chapter 34, we learn that Jacob's children, they had a bad experience with the people of Shechem. The prince, his name was Shechem, he had raped their sister Dinah. And Shechem fell in love with Dinah and asked Jacob for her hand in marriage. The brothers, however, intervened and they agreed that Dinah could marry Shechem as long as Shechem, his father, and his whole city of men would be circumcised. And three days after these guys were circumcised, after this painful surgery, Simeon and Levi took up arms and killed every man in that city. Jacob wasn't super happy with their behavior, needless to say. So it causes us to wonder, why is Jacob sending Joseph by himself to Shechem? Was it to make sure those boys weren't doing something stupid again, right? Maybe make sure they were safe. I mean, the, the city's not super happy with the brothers either, right? And I found it interesting that, that Joseph's found wandering there in Shechem. Some guy approaches them, who are you looking for? He said, my brothers, and he knows exactly who he's talking about, Right? The mention of Shechem reminds us that Jacob and his children were not upright and holy people. There is a huge contrast in this story of Jacob between the unrighteousness of Jacob and his boys and the righteousness of Joseph. Jacob and his children were involved in murder, incest, polygamy, prostitution, idol worship, And that's all just crammed into five chapters, folks. Jacob's firstborn, Reuben, slept with Jacob's concubine. Judah slept with his daughter-in-law, thinking she was a temple prostitute. These are children of the promise God made with Abraham. And they're acting like fools. The Bible, however, portrays Joseph as one who is without sin. I mean, we can make assumptions that maybe he was prideful. We can make assumptions that he was hateful to his brothers, but the Bible never explicitly tells us that Joseph sinned. There's this contrast. And Joseph is surrounded by those who don't seem to care about the covenant that God made with Abraham. And if we're honest with ourselves, we kind of understand this as we live in this culture, right? It's hard to live in an environment where people don't take God seriously. I mean, we could spend the whole remainder of our time talking about how the world hates Christians. But not just that. If you look closely, you'll see there is a growing number of Christians who are a lot like Jacob's brothers. They are heirs of this wonderful promise, living as if this promise doesn't matter. On Wednesday night, uh, my man Austin over here, he was teaching on 2 Peter 1-4. Though these, through these, it said, Peter says, he has given us a very great and precious promise. Why? So that through them, through these promises, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that this world caused by evil desires. Do you see what Peter is trying to communicate to the church? He's trying to say, stop acting like Jacob and his, and his sons. Be, be heirs of the promise. It should cause us to act and behave. Differently, God gave us these promises so that we may participate in the good, the restoration of what God has here on earth. We should stand out from the world. And we should stand out from these so-called Christians as ones who are participating in the kingdom of God. Let's read on verse 18. But the brothers saw Joseph in the distance, and before he reached them, they had already plotted how they were going to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him, and then, listen to this, we'll see what comes of those dreams he had. We'll see who's bowing to who, right? And when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue Joseph from their hands. Let's not, let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Why don't we throw him into the cistern and then not lay a hand on him? Reuben said this because he hoped to rescue him and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to the brothers, they stripped him of his robe. Of course, that's the first thing they grabbed, right? Right? And they took him and they threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh and they were on their way to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain? What gain will it be if we kill this brother of ours and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother in our own flesh and blood. And so the brothers agreed to this plan, right? So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern, sold him for 20 shekels of silver, and they took him to Egypt. Man, this passage really gets ugly, right? It turns quickly from jealousy. Hey, look at that dreamer. Hatred. We talked last week about hatred was mentioned three times. They hated Joseph quickly to murder. Joseph poses no imminent threat to his brothers. We'll see what comes of those dreams, they said. Maybe they feared that Joseph would steal the inheritance Maybe they feared that those dreams were actually God-inspired. I don't know, but their hatred and jealousy boiled up, and it became toxic. And I think there's something spiritual happening here. The brothers, they, 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 were, they hated him, right? The brothers hated him, and they cared a lot about this dream he had. And being daddy's favorite, they rip that robe off of them, right? But I think the spiritual battle goes deeper because Satan cares a little bit more about that promise that God made to Abraham, right? The brothers, they cared about the temporary. Satan seemed to be a little bit more concerned about the eternal. While the covenant of Abraham is at stake, the brothers, they can't see past their noses. Let's talk about spiritual battles. Will you pray for Cornerstone? The leadership of this church wants Cornerstone to become a place that makes disciples who will live out their calling in every day of the week. We we don't want Sundays just to be the only time that we gather together. We want this place to be a place, a community that makes disciples. And Satan doesn't want that. He doesn't like it when the Christians focus on the eternal. He wants Christians to focus on the here and now, the temporary. And there's a spiritual battle taking place right now, keeping all of us away from the calling we've received. We must be aware of that. Pray for strength to keep fighting. Paul says, In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, fight the good fight, Paul said. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of that when you made that good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Can I point out something in this passage that maybe you might have skipped over? I know I did. Cisterns aren't supposed to be empty. Israel's dry season was incredibly dry. Cisterns are about 18 to 20 feet deep. They're cut out. They're caves, really, cut out in the the rock. And when it rains, it rains in Israel. And those caves fill with water. And it kind of becomes a temporary well. They're not supposed to be empty in the dry season, but filled with life-giving water. And the boys they were caught dry weren't they they were caught dry and satan attacked let's look at this final verse together in verse 30, in chapter 37 verse 36 it says meanwhile the midianites sold joseph in egypt to potiphar one of pharaoh's officials the captain of the guard and just like that folks joseph is now in egypt it all makes sense to us who knows the story, right? We know that Joseph would eventually save all of Egypt and the line of Abraham through seven years of famine. Jacob and his sons didn't have the resources to save that many people, right? And so Joseph had to end up in Egypt, which means God led Joseph to that pit, right? I don't like that part. I wanted to put this out of the sermon, right? We don't want to talk about God leading us to any kind of pit, right? I think it's a reminder that sometimes we need to go to the pit. Maybe sometimes it'll help us do a little growing. There's James in his first chapter that said, consider it pure joy, right? Whenever you face trials of many kinds, those pits of the life, right? Because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance finishes at work so that you can be mature, so you can be complete, so you cannot lack anything. But it also could be that God makes us go to the pit because that's where he needs us. Sometimes it's for the testing of our faith. Sometimes it's for strength and perseverance and growing in Christ, but sometimes it's just because that's exactly where God needs you to be, and that is exactly where Joseph needed to be. It was not fun, folks. We get every indication that they stripped him bare, and he had no idea what was going to happen next. One minute he's just checking up on his brothers, and the next he's fearing for his life. But that's exactly where God needed him to be. I heard a pastor once say that pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. God doesn't always still the storm, but he can calm the sailor. And there's an author by the name of Haruki Murakami who said pain is inevitable, Suffering is optional. Say you're running and you think, man, this this really hurts. I can't take it anymore. The hurt part is unavoidable, right? But whether or not you stand anymore, that's up to the runner. We talk about the pit, and it reminds me of a Passover meal a long, long time ago. Jesus had had gathered with his disciples and he revealed to them that he was about to go to the pit. He was about to die. And Jesus was sent to the cross. And the cross was the only answer to the sin of this world. And the early disciples, they knew that there would be challenges because it all started with a challenge, amen? The early disciples knew there would be challenges. They knew there would be pits. They knew there would be crosses. Why? Because it all started with one. And he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. No matter what pit you're thrown into, remember that God was sent there too. And our calling remains the same. As we sing the song Jesus Messiah, I'm going to invite each of you to go and take a cup. And the three corners over here, you can get a cup. And on the bottom cup is the bread. The top cup is the juice. The bread represents the body that was broken and the cup represents the new covenant that God has made with us. Did you hear me? It's a new covenant covenant. The boys forgot the covenant. They forgot the promise. They got so caught up in this world who's daddy's favorite and what kind of revenge do we need to, and it went on and on that they forgot about the promise. Remember today the sacrifice and death, celebrating our new life in Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we can't say thank you enough because you went to the cross. We celebrate at this time because you took the pain that we deserved. You took on sin that we committed and that you made us new through your blood. Father, help us to remember that, not just right now, but throughout this week and our lives. I pray that that will mold and shape each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.